Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr Andrew Corbett. We're pleased you've been able to join us for tonight's program. I hope by the fact that Jeremiah is pointing culpability at these people that we recognise this, God has ordained government to curb evil and promote righteousness. And when I say government, I mean in the home, in the church and in society. What is the purpose of government? Now, it's important to note that good governance includes the promotion of the highest good and the protection from harm. Governance takes place on multiple levels. It begins with self-government that's influenced by our family, the church and the state. We see it outlined quite clearly several times in the Bible. Tonight, Dr Corbett is in the Old Testament book of Jeremiah to explore the three arms of God's government, family, church and state. Father, your word is living and active, able, it says in Hebrews 4.12, to divide the soul from the spirit and the body, even the joints and marrow. Your word is able to get in deeply into our soul like nothing else. And Father, when you quicken your word by your Holy Spirit, you speak to our hearts and you show us things that we need to know and you help us to understand things in a way that perhaps no classroom could ever do. And today, Father, I just pray that not only would you help me to hide behind your word and speak in a way that I disappear and you become very clear That today, Lord, you would heal hearts, you would bring peace where there is confusion, you would bring wisdom where there is uncertainty, and Father, today you would shine a light for people so that they can see clearly what they have to do. And I pray for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So my my intention this morning is not to beat anyone up. It's actually not to um, have a rant. I've got nothing to rant about. I, I, I want to help you and I want to speak to those people who have a part to play in governing and I'm going to be defining this term and using this term and the reason I'm doing this is because I actually see this through the book of Jeremiah and we have, we have gone all the way through until the last two chapters of Jeremiah which we're going to use to finish up with. So now I'm recapping this by giving you the major themes of Jeremiah and this is one of the major themes. And as we look at the, the, the major themes of Jeremiah, we've seen as we've opened in chapter 1, which we'll be doing again soon, that in the opening two chapters, the, the major themes are there. And it's not like I'm trying to invent something or trying to put something into the book of Jeremiah that wasn't ever there. I'm going to contend that what we are looking at as the major themes is there. It's, it's actually very, very plain. It's very simple. And when, once you see it and then you read through the book, you go, ah, ah, okay, yeah, there it is. And one of the, a couple of things that we've looked at already is the sovereignty of God, where God uses the expression, I am the Lord. And in our English Bibles, to convey that sovereignty of God, which means he's the supreme God, he will have his way. It, the English translators translate that word capitals L-O-R-D just to convey the majesty of, of God, the spectacular importance of who God is. We've seen also the word of God is a theme and we've seen how Israel had rejected the word of God. Then later on, how Judah had rejected the word of God. So if you know, after the reign of King Solomon, which was the United Kingdom of Israel, where all 12 tribes uh, honoured one king, that was Solomon, with his son Rehoboam. 
there was a split. The ten northern tribes went with Jeroboam and the two southern tribes stayed with Rehoboam. And from that point on, Israel was permanently divided. It was no longer a united kingdom. And so you have the nation of Israel, which we will see is referred to as uh, Ephraim. And in, for those people who love grammar, there is, the Bible uses what's called metonyms. And this is where you take uh, a word, uh, which is a part, to speak of the whole. So for example, if I said to you, out of Washington today came an, a decree, you would know that I'm talking about the US government or the president or whatever. So we're using that word Washington as a metonym for the United States. The Bible does the same thing. And of Israel, it's going to use the metonym Samaria. Now you need to know that because we're going to see that in a moment in Jeremiah. And, and it also does the same thing for Judah. And it, it, it's, whenever it says Jerusalem, you know, we see Jesus in Matthew 23 saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stone the prophets, how long I've wanted to gather you as a mother hen would gather her chicks. And when he says Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you know, you, you, the city of sin, he's, he's not saying that all the cities outside Jerusalem at that time were, were filled with saints. He's using Jerusalem as a metonym for all Israel. And so we're going to see a little bit of that as well in here. We've seen the voice of God is a theme through Jeremiah. We see the voice of God is an expression that runs through the Old Testament. And, and it's God's continual presence and his word being spoken usually through prophets. And so we see the, the, the theme of the voice of God ultimately culminating in John the Baptist. When Isaiah the prophet prophesied of John the Baptist, he said, Behold, a voice in the wilderness. And John the Baptist was... The, the expression of the voice of God at the time of the coming of Christ. So now we're going to look at the three arms of God's government. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 1 and it says this, The word of the Lord came to me saying, verse 2, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord. So already in that, these couple of verses we've picked up on three of the themes that run through Jeremiah that we've already looked at. I, now, listen to the heart of God. Sometimes it's easy to be in conversation with someone and not actually hear them. Uh, sometimes people tell you things, and for us blokes who tend to just hear words as facts, you know, like uh, you come home, you ask your wife, um, how was your day? And she says, good. What has she just told you? The day was good. Fact, tick. Okay, what's for dinner? Whereas if you have uh, been married for more than five minutes, you'll realise she's just told you she's had a horrible day. Now, I know that there are young guys here who aren't yet married, and this will come as a shock to you when you finally do get married, to realise how English can be used. but we need to listen in a way that we hear what people are actually telling us and don't always get trapped into thinking it's just about the words we use. And this is what I want you to do. Hear the heart of God. Because what we're going to read may shock you. It may startle you. It, 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 this could be... Absolutely stunning if you get this. That God is now talking about the sin of his people 
not as if he's a judge who is offended that they've broken the law. But if you hear the language here, you're going to hear God talk as if he was a jilted lover, a husband who's given everything to his bride and she has broken faith in the worst possible way. I'm not making this up. I'm not trying to put this into the text. Let's read the text and see if you can now hear what God is saying. And we read, we continue to read in verse 2. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. You can imagine the devotion of a young bride who would follow her bridegroom. I'll go with you wherever you go. Well, I'm going into the wilderness where there's no shade, there's no water, there's no food. Okay, I'll come. That's love. And that's what God's saying. I remember your devotion. You followed me like that. We go down to verse 5. We, in fact, we could, we could read verse 3. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest, all who ate of it incurred guilt disaster came upon them declares the lord so anyone who touched his bride god was quick to to deal with them and and it goes on it's still the language of a lover and in uh, well uh, verse four hear the word of the lord there's another theme O house of judah and all the clans of the house of israel and now we come into verse five thus says the lord what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless. There is a play on words here about the word futile and idols, that they are worthless. We could read on in verse 6 where it says, They did not say, uh, Where is the Lord? who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through, where no man dwells. It's a picture of God saying, you know, you're, I, brought you through, I brought you through this place. You said you'd come with me and you were fine, remember? You were fine. You had, you had enough to drink, you, had an, you were clothed, you were provided for, you had enough to eat. Didn't you realize I looked after you? You're, why didn't your fathers tell you this? And we come down to verse 7, and I brought you into a plentiful land. It says, to enjoy its fruits and its good things, but when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. What's he saying? defiled is often a sexual term you came into this land you followed me as a as, as, as a young bride follows and here I, here we, we we settled in the land and straight away you ran off you took other lovers we come to verse 8 the priests did not say although that word is better ask because they didn't say this question where is the Lord, 
those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, uh, an idol, and went after things that do not profit. We, in this passage that we've read from verse 1 down to verse 8, we have a depiction of the three arms of God's government that he expects will be his institutions for governing people. Now, I know that there's a whole bunch of people who say, we don't need government, we don't need anyone telling us what to do. And I think the, the human nature says, I don't want anyone telling me what to do. But can I also tell you that human nature is why we actually need government? Because of human nature being what it is, we all need governing. We all need governing. You ever seen those candid camera moments where they put um, a, a tray of beautiful cupcakes in the middle of a, a room on a small child's table and they have one child there and they have the ca secret camera running they say, now don't eat any of these cakes. We'll be back in a moment. Could be a little while, we'll be back in a moment. And you know what the child does? Because we've all done it, right? Just in different contexts, we've all done it. Like, let's see, if I take one out and rearrange them, will it look like one's missing? <sighs> Human nature. We've all done it. Just, as I say, maybe in different contexts. We, we all, and, and the reason our, our human nature is like that is because the story of reality, this is the Bible, tells us that from the very beginning, our forefather, Adam, introduced a poison into the human race called sin. And I like what Pastor Sean Wood said, if sin was blue, we'd all be Smurfs. We're all contaminated by sin. And it, it causes us to look how... Because if you remember in the Garden of Eden, uh, do, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when they did, man has become like us, God said, knowing good from evil, in the sense that they now think they can determine what is good and what is evil for themselves. And that's self-deification, because there is actually one who can tell us what is good and evil for us. And that's God. And uh, if you've ever been in a, the, the, the cockpit of a plane flying through clouds at night, every private pilot will tell you, excuse me, I have to focus on my, not windscreen, anyone know? The instruments. And can I tell you life can get foggy and dark? And can I tell you this? is our instruments. And so we all need good government. We, we need governing. Good governance is essentially this. It's the promotion. It's two things, and here's the first of them, two broad categories. It's the promotion of the highest good. Good government gives incentives to do good. If you go and clean up your room now, I'll give you a treat. Now, that might sound like bribery or it might sound like an incentive. And every parent who's worn out and tired knows it's an incentive. And good government also, good governance, also includes protection from harm. So we, we should, as parents, providing government to our children, 
do that which promotes good, and we should discourage, hinder, and protect from that which does harm. Where does good government begin? Well, I'm going to quote from uh, a man I deeply admire, his name's Frank, who basically says this, a good government must begin with good self-government. I'm just going to jump to one of my applications, and I don't normally like to jump to applications before I've worked my way up and it becomes really, really obvious what the applications are. But because good government starts with good self-government, whenever I hear a politician say, um, well, publicly I agree with it, but privately I disagree with it, I just go, what the heck does that mean? Um, what I do in my, and haven't we heard this recently, what I do in private is none of your business. I'm, I'm just going to go, I don't agree with that at all. I think who you are in private has a large bearing on how you will be in public. And if you are this in public and this in private, you are two selves. And the Bible actually uses a word, it's in Psalm 79, I believe, that talks about King David led Israel with integrity of heart. Anyone know what an integer is? Any maths teachers? An integer? It's a whole number. And integrity means not divided, it means whole, one. You're... You're the same person in private as in public. Character and so on. Don't, I don't want to be misunderstood there. I don't want to be misunderstood to think that any, any national secret you're told in private, you should you know, instantly call a press conference to announce to the enemy. I, that, that's, please, I'm not saying that. Here's the quote from my heroes. Politics is the science of government. The essence of government is self-government. And the only way in which a man can be sure that he himself is well and wisely governed is by crowning Christ king. The only way you can have good self-government is if you have the ultimate leader giving you direction for your life and Christ is that ultimate leader. No one loves you more, no one knows you better than Christ. Let's do a little flashback to the, to the backdrop here to Jeremiah back in this early chapter. He has brought an accusation against the leaders of Jerusalem. As, and I've told you that's a metonym for all Israel. A century before this, the ten tribes to the north had collapsed. A century prior to Jeremiah's condemnation of Jerusalem, speaking of the southern tribes, Israel's government, that is the, the ten northern tribes, had collapsed. And this is how Isaiah put it for the reason why it collapsed. The land is full, is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. And Isaiah the prophet in the first 39 chapters of his book, who is writing at the time when the 10 northern tribes of Israel had fallen into such a parlous state, where they were eventually taken as prisoners and taken away to Assyria and became known as the lost tribes of Israel, we see that that Israel had fallen into three great and grievous ills. So the northern kingdom of Israel, known as Samaria or Ephraim, had fallen to, and they're all with I, idolatry, immorality and ignorance being ignoring God's word. Not that they were stupid or... 
but they had ignored God's word. So idolatry, immorality, which naturally flows from idolatry, and ignoring God's word. They were the three things that the northern tribes had done. And now Jeremiah is going to point out, you, my people, the people of Judah, are doing exactly the same thing. And I'm going to level the the charge at the feet of three categories of people who are responsible. And we just read it in those eight verses of chapter 2. Jeremiah would go on to write the history of the northern tribes of Israel. You may have read his book. It's called Second Kings. So in Second Kings, it describes how Israel, that's the northern tribe of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, their governing authorities. And here's the categories that we read in, in this section. It, it includes the fathers. And we're going to put that in the general category of family. The priests and prophets and the kings had led the people astray. And in these first eight verses of Jeremiah chapter 2, we see each of those people identified as the culprits, the one who bore the responsibility, the the, the culpability for where Israel was and where Judah was. So we read this ominous warning from Jeremiah in chapter 7 verse 15. You saw what happened to our brothers in the ten northern tribes. You saw what happened to them. You saw what happened to Ephraim. I'm telling you, we're doing the same thing and we're doomed to the same fate unless we repent. Unless we turn from idolatry, immorality and ignoring God's word. And I will cast you out of my sight, Jeremiah says. And I will cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim, just as it happened to Ephraim so It will happen to you. And Jeremiah has identified that the governing leaders of his people, Judah, were responsible for what was happening. Hmm. Who are these people? Let me remind you. We just read it in chapter 2. It included the fathers. The fathers. So when I say one of the categories of government is families, I'm also going to say this. And then I'm going to have to explain something when I say families I I, I mean fathers bear the greatest responsibility within families fathers do I I have seen and I'm, I'm not meaning to be condemning I'm meaning to wake you up a little bit if this is your story I've seen a husband and wife in a context where their kids are bouncing off the walls and the husband sits there expecting his wife to do everything to calm or pacify or do something for those kids and I'm looking at this bloke and I'm thinking and please forgive me for some of the thoughts I have but I think you're their dad step up dads we read in chapter 16 verse 11 then you shall say to them because your fathers have forsaken me declares the Lord and gone after other gods idolatry And have served and worshipped them and forsaken me and have not kept my law. Ignorance. And we read on through Jeremiah that these are the people that were having ritualistic sex with temple prostitutes on the hills overlooking Jerusalem in front of phallic symbols with the warped idea that this would fertilise their crops. That's immorality. 
And the Bible paints a very, 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 very different picture of what sexual intimacy is supposed to be about. And it's supposed to be about love, commitment and intimacy. Not slapping meat together. It's about intimacy. Jeremiah also identified that the governing authorities that I'm going to put in the category of priests, and it includes priests and prophets, were responsible. In a moment, I'm going to draw the analogy of where does, this, where does this equate today? But let's look at what Jeremiah said had led the people into this terrible spiritual state that led them into economic decline, that led them into social decline, social disintegration. It all stemmed from their relationship with God being broken down. He says in chapter 23, verse 11, both prophet and priest are ungodly. Even in my house, I have found their evil, declares the Lord. Fump. This is a, no, no wonder what awaited Judah. And if you haven't read the last two chapters of Jeremiah's book, Babylon comes in and takes people away to Babylon and those they didn't take they killed and those they didn't kill escaped and they tracked them down they killed them it was Jerusalem's undoing the city of Jerusalem was completely destroyed the walls were broken down the temple was taken apart block by block it was a sad sad period and then the last category that Jeremiah identifies as being culpable and responsible for the horrible state that Judah found themselves in were the kings. And I'm going to use a word, kings and officials, because it's a word Jeremiah uses, officials. These are people employed in the royal service. These are people required to deliver certain services of the king and for the people. And these people, Jeremiah describes as thieves. We read in chapter 2 and verse 26, as a thief is shamed when caught, so the house of Israel has been shamed. They, their kings, their officials, their priests and their prophets. Oh, thump, just puts them all in there. These are the people, Jeremiah says, who because of their lack of faithfulness to me, it has caused the demise of the nation of Judah. So now let me come to the conclusion. Every good preacher hopefully tells, reads the text so we get what it means, what it, what it says. We look at what it means, what it meant to them. We're trying to look over their shoulder to hear what they were hearing. I hope we've done that this morning. And now we've got to go, okay, so what? How does this apply to us? Let's have a consider of this. And perhaps there are some here are thinking, well, it's got nothing to do with us. We're not Jewish. We don't live in that land. We're not in that era. This has got nothing to do with us. And uh, I hope that's not the way you're looking at this, but if it is, then can I remind you, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 6, in talking about the events of the Old Testament, says this, Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. So speaking of the history of Israel, beginning with their exodus, all the way through their history, these things are recorded in Scripture, the Apostle Paul tells us, as examples for us of what not to do. So let's see if we can get those examples of what not to do from this. Firstly, I hope by the fact that Jeremiah is pointing culpability at these people that we recognise this, God has ordained government to curb evil and promote righteousness. 
And when I say government, I mean in the home, in the church and in society. They would be the three most obvious applications immediately. Romans chapter 13 verse 1, the Apostle Paul says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Did he mean the Roman government? Yes, he did. And if you know anything about Paul writing this, early 50s or mid 50s AD, within 10 years he would stand before Caesar. In AD 64, he would stand before Caesar Germanicus Nero. And Nero would order him to be beheaded. The interesting thing, interesting, I think it's in 1st or 2nd Peter, and my apologies for not getting precise, I could look at it now. The Apostle Peter, just weeks after, maybe months after, he appears before Nero. And he's ordered to death by crucifixion. But just prior to that happening, the Apostle Peter writes, Honour the king. What on earth? Honour the king. And who is he talking about? Caesar Nero. One of the most vile, wicked people, let alone leaders, emperors, that's ever That's all we have time for tonight, but you can order the full-length version of this presentation on CD audio or premium download by going to findingtruthmatters.org and selecting Jeremiah Part 191 from our online store. As we've heard tonight, God has ordered that people be governed by fathers in the family, by shepherds in the church and by officials in our nation's government. More from Dr Corbett next week. Dr Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.